Philippians, I'd like to read from verse 27 in chapter 1 down through verse 11 of chapter 2. Philippians 1, 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening, and we come to you by way of Christ Jesus, the sinner's friend. And God, we are thankful for the friendship that we have with him, a friendship that is nearer than any other friendship. God, we thank you that you have brought us to him and united us to him with a, a bond that is uh, indissoluble. It cannot be broken. We're grateful, Father, that in reality, he's the one holding us and who makes that bond to be strong. God, we have no confidence that we would hold firmly enough or um, not fall away in some moment of temptation or uh, selfishness. But God, you come to us and rescue us and you grab hold of us firmly and you tell us plainly that in your hand no one can snatch us out. And God, we're grateful for, um, for that assurance and for the work that you have done to bring us so completely to yourself. And again, not just a friend, but a brother. He's our elder brother. 
And we're made to be joint heirs with Him. Father, we praise You for this salvation. We praise You, God, that it is Your work and Yours alone. And because it's Yours, God, we trust that You will complete it. And as Paul says in Philippians 1, that you will, uh, you'll do that work and bring us to the end. Lord, we pray for uh, ourselves, God, because we are needy and dependent. And we look to you again, God, and ask you to fill us up with yourself and to stir our hearts to greater zeal and greater love and greater faith. God, we pray that we wouldn't lag behind and settle for um, what might feel like a moment of ease and comfort when there's so much, not only to do externally, but God, so much ground in our own hearts to be taken. And there is much work to do. God, we pray that you'd give us grace to labor while it's still day. God, we pray that um, as Christ's love burns in zeal toward us, that ours would burn in zeal toward Him. God, we don't think it could match the intensity, but we do pray, God, that it would, would burn and not sizzle out, not fizzle. Um, God, we pray that um, there would be a real warmth in our souls toward the Lord and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ because of Him. And God, we pray that if that's not there, that we would not be content to stay in a place of coolness or lukewarmness. God, we pray for so many of our brothers and sisters who are sick right now. We thank You that John Ferguson's surgery went well. We pray for John Didier. And God, we do pray that You would Strengthen him physically and strengthen him, God, in the inner man. Help him, God, to, um, to be able to eat and get strength. And God, we pray that you would give his doctors much wisdom as they try to weigh different things that, are, that need attention and different medicines that react against each other. And God, help them to know how best to treat him. God, for so many others who just have some virus, a stomach bug, and cannot be here. God, we pray for them. For, for Alice and James, God, and um, her surgery today, God, we lift her and her family up to you and ask that you would help them. God, bring comfort to them as they uh, wait to see the outcome of all this. God, so many sicknesses again remind us of how completely dependent upon you we are and what a, a small little bug can do to make us feel it. God, as we come to your word tonight, we're dependent there also. We can look at sentences and understand words and thoughts, but God, to really get the, the weight of what you have to say to us. God, we need you. We need your spirit to come and speak to us and open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. God, bring conviction where it's needed and bring the bomb of Gilead where that's needed. 
apply it to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. All right, Philippians. Um, we began in verse 27 reading, but we're in chapter 2 now. I wanted to go back to chapter 1 because, as I've mentioned, chapter 2 really isn't taking on a completely different subject, but it is a continuation of what he began in chapter 1 and verse 27. Previous to that, he had been telling them about his situation and what he was facing and how God was taking care of him and that he was, in fact, rejoicing. And in telling them that, he was comforting them because they're concerned for him. But now in verse 27, he turns to them and says to them, you, only you, conduct yourselves this way. And he tells them to live as citizens in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or we could say it this way, live in a way that reflects well upon the gospel. The gospel has come to you and you've received all the benefits of it and it's worked in you. Now you live in a way that reflects well upon it. And in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, he's really telling them to do that. And he explains after giving the general command to, to live worthy of the gospel, he gives them some specifics. And those specifics are geared toward facing the world. They live in a hostile world. We don't know everything that they might have been facing because he doesn't go into a lot of specifics about that. But we know from his time in Philippi that you know, he ends up in jail for preaching the gospel. He says here that they're facing a similar conflict. They do live in a time where emperor worship goes on and people will go around saying, Caesar is Lord. And if you're greeted that way, how do you respond? Um, I think of, it's not an exact comparison, but maybe somewhat similar. If you lived in, in Nazi Germany... And someone knocks on your door and greets you, you know, Heil Hitler. And you're not a fan of Hitler and the Third Reich. How do you respond? You know, do you kind of give them a mumbled Heil Hitler and hope that's enough? Or do you, because of fear, give them a, an even more enthusiastic Heil Hitler, you know? Or do you not say, you not return that greeting and, and hope that that doesn't end you up in a concentration camp or, or, or dead? Well, Caesar's Lord. The Christian can't in good conscience respond, yeah, you know, Caesar's Lord. Because they've come to understand Jesus is Lord. And I don't know if not saying that would have made them, you know, likely for jail or, or for extermination, but they could be ostracized. They could lose their job. They live in a time when there's a lot of pagan worship and, you know, Food is offered to sacrifices. Maybe they're invited to these different parties where that's going to be part of the ritual. And they can't in good conscience go and participate in that. And after a while, it gets noticed. Everybody else is eating that meat and sacrificing that idol. Why don't you come and do that? And, you know, there's the possibility again of losing your job being ostracized, and, and they feel the pressure of all that. So he tells them, stand firm. It's not just, just talk, but you, know, you, you can't give in to that. But then in chapter 2, there's also the need, as we live together in a body with so many different individuals, to respond in a way that reflects well upon the gospel with each other. Different personalities, if we're not careful, different agendas, how do we get along? How do we remain united in a way that demonstrates that we are all together constrained by the love of Christ? 
so that there's not petty factions. First Corinthians, I mean, I, don't, I can't remember the dates of Philippians versus First Corinthians, but you remember in First Corinthians, Paul writes, some of you say that you're of Paul and others of Cephas and others of Apollos. There are all these little divisions within the body of Christ. And he tells them, that's not good. You can't have these factions. And so to the Philippian believers, he writes and he is warning them about that kind of idea. And he urges them to a unity that will guard against that. And that's where we're at now in chapter 2. Last week in verse 1, we looked at the motives that he gives them towards that end. Tonight, we're going to just look at verse 2. Now, just very quickly, verses 1 through 4 really, again, are one long sentence. And the only reason we're not looking at them at one sentence and, and you know, one sermon is because I'd keep you here so long. There's enough to say that it'd be such a long sermon. And it's Wednesday night and you don't go to sleep maybe. Um, so I'm dividing it up not because, you know, it's four different ideas or three different ideas or whatever, but, you know, so that we can swallow and, and not get indigestion with so much information. Um, so verse 2 tonight is all we're going to cover. And in verse 2, he begins to describe what he means by this unity. You know, I want you to, to be of the same mind. What does that mean? What does it look like? So that's kind of where we're headed tonight. And I want to begin by uh, looking at the way he describes this in verse 2. Make my joy complete. There was the command. We looked at that last week as a fifth motive. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, I do want to mention before we look at the specifics of, of what he says here, most of our English translations, maybe all of them, all the ones I've looked at, are written in such a way that after the command, make my joy complete, it looks like he says four different things. So I'm looking at the New American Standard, and it reads like this again, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, comma, united in spirit, comma, intent on one purpose. It looks like four things. But almost all the commentators agree, the language appears to agree there's only three things here. So you have the, the main verb being expressed, be of one mind. And then you have two dependent clauses. They're, they're participles, you know, modifying somehow the main verb. United in spirit is an adjective. And it's going to modify one of those other clauses. It, it doesn't really line up as a third of four items. So I think there are three. Maybe our translations read the way they do because while the commentators and the Greek guys kind of agree that there are three things, they don't agree on what it modifies. So maybe they write it that way to be ambivalent and you can try to figure it out yourself. But anyway, I'm telling you that because I'm going to say one, two, three, and you might be reading and think, wait a minute, there's four. Well, I don't think there are four. There's three, and that's why we're doing it that way, okay? So the first one, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. The word Paul uses here, being of the same mind, is the basic word to think. I want you to think this way. You could say, I want you to think the same things. It's a word that he likes a lot. It's used 33 times or so in the New Testament. And 10 of those times are in the book of Philippians. And I want to go through those 10 occurrences because 
there's a wide range of meanings or of ways that they translate that word, even in the book of Philippians, depending on the context. But I want to go through them because behind those different ideas or ranges of meanings, there's, I think, one central thing that will help us to understand verse 2 and what Paul means here. So the first one is in chapter 1 and verse 7, where Paul says, It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And the word to feel is this word to think or to be mindful. And I think we can understand that because we use the, the word in a similar way. And we can say, I think, and what I mean is I'm, I'm rationally thinking, and I feel, and we mean I'm, I'm being emotional, right? But we also use it interchangeably. What do you think about that? Well, I feel it's this way. And we really mean, I think it's this way. And Paul says, I look at you, and I, I think this way about you. I feel this way about you. It's not a wrong in, uh, uh, translation. His, his feelings are based in rational fact. These are the facts about you which lead me to think this way and to feel this way about you. So that's the first one. I, I, I feel this way about you. The second one is in our passage here, chapter 2 and verse 2, be of the same mind. But then the third one is also in verse 2, the last part of that sentence or that last part of that verse, intent on one purpose. The word intent is the same word. It's a slightly different form. It's a participle, but it's still the same verb. A third one, chapter 2 and verse 5, pardon me, the fourth one. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word attitude is this same word. Christ thinks in a certain way about things that leads him to behave in a certain way. This is his attitude, his outlook. You have this attitude, this way of thinking that leads to a way of behaving in you that Christ had in himself. That word attitude shows up twice more in chapter 3 and verse 15 as Paul challenges the saints to follow his example. Let us therefore as many as are perfect or mature have this attitude, this way of thinking. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. In verse 19, with tears, he describes those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, he's not saying that they had a worldly thought. This is the mindset that they have. This is the bent of their mind. Their mind is set on earthly things. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he urges Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Same word. Think the same thing. Have the same mindfulness in the Lord. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. And the word concern is that word. And again, in verse 10, indeed you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You've revived your concern for me, your thoughtfulness for me. I'm on your mind. You think about me. So there's seven or eight different ways to translate that word over those, I think, eight verses to feel, to be minded, to in, intent, attitude, set your mind, live in harmony, be concerned. 
But if you think about this range of meanings, I think the point expressed by the verb is not just that you do think. Paul's not saying you need to engage your mind and think. You should, but that's not the point here. It's not um, a particular thought that you all need to agree on. Like you all need to have the same thoughts and think the same thoughts after each other so that we're all kind of carbon copies of each other. But rather it is a dominant attitude or a mindset, a bent of mind. Our mind runs in the same direction. And he's speaking, of course, a spiritual direction. There's a spiritual direction that all of our minds together in Christ run toward. So, again, not carbon copies of each other. We don't have to think the same thing about everything or feel the same way about everything. You know, we don't all have to drive the same brand of car because we think the same way about cars. We all hate the same dessert because none of us can stand it. You know, if, if one of us can't, then none of us can because we think and feel the same way. It's not that at all. Um, everybody rooting for the same sports team, you know. It's like, what's the point of even competing, right? Um, do you remember, some of you will remember, some of you probably will not. It's hard to believe it's been that long ago. Late 80s, early 90s, Rush Limbaugh hit the airwaves and started saying things that hadn't really been on radio for a while and resonated with a lot of people. And people would start calling into his show and say, Rush, I love what you said about this and this and this and this. And I don't know who the first person was. Maybe Rush knew. But at some point, someone got on the air and said, Rush, ditto. And what they meant was what he just said. You know, I agree with all that. I agree with you. And people started saying that. They'd call in and to get past all the I love this and I love that, they would say ditto. And they became known as, do you remember? Ditto heads. They're ditto heads. Paul is not saying that we have to be spiritual ditto heads. That's not his point. We all have the same exact opinion about everything. You know, if that was true, there would be no church fights ever, right? We all have the same opinion. Do you know that there's a book? There's actually a book called Great Church Fights. And there's nothing great about it, really, because it's shameful. But there's a book written called Great Church Fights. Um, anyway, that was free. Um, so it's not that we, we just you know, have a shared opinion about everything, but there's a shared spirit and a shared purpose. We're all headed in the same direction and agreed upon the goal. And maybe even more shocking, he's not even talking about doctrine here. And I'm not saying that doctrine's unimportant. I'm not saying that at all. But that's not really his point here. He's not talking to a bunch of people who are disagreed about doctrine as if to say, you know, you think this way about this subject and you think this way. You know, over here we've got a bunch of Calvinists, over here a bunch of Arminians, or you know, we've got a bunch of, of um, premillennialists and a bunch of amillennialists and there's some postmillennialists in the bunch and y'all are all arguing about all this stuff. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he, well, he doesn't actually say this. I mean, if you kind of read between the lines, I think he does make it clear Something that we can certainly recognize is true. We can all share the same doctrinal statement and sign off on it and still not get along. It happens all over the place. 
This settled disposition that he speaks of is more than a veneer. He's calling them to live in a way that reflects the gospel. And it's, a, uh, it's being gotten hold of by Christ so that you know, when pressure comes, the veneer doesn't fall away and now you're at each other's throats. But rather, there's substance there. And not that it's easy, it feels easy, there'd be no command. But there is substance. That's the first one. Being of the same mind. The second phrase in verse 2. Maintaining the same love. And I'm going to add united in spirit. And put those two together. And I'm going to do that because the first one. Maintaining the same mind, or being of the same mind, pardon me. And the last one, intent on one purpose, both speak of, of thinking. But in the middle, you have these two expressions about affection. And so I think they go together. And the intent on one purpose, I, I just did it wrong, pardon me. The united in spirit is an adjective modifying maintaining the same love. So Paul calls us. To something more than just thinking alike. He calls us more than to just shared convictions. He calls us to a shared love. Maintaining the same love. Paul had introduced love as a theme in chapter 1 and verse 9. As he prayed for the Philippians. Do you remember? He prays for them that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And he prays for them there because they need that. and He wants it for them. But he prays for them there also because they're completely dependent upon God for that to be a reality. And Paul's completely dependent upon God for that to be a reality. Paul can't come and, and infuse love into them. And they can't produce it themselves. So he prays, God, make them to abound in love. Their love to abound in real knowledge and all discernment. That's just... You know, prayer. But now he moves from the realm of prayer to calling to the Philippians to obey in chapter 2. And it's as if he says, I prayed for you that this would be a reality, that you would have a, an abounding love. Now, Philippians, it's time to get up and maintain that love. God's provided what you need for that, but now it's time for you to obey and you can't let it languish. You've got to exercise yourself toward this love. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote of them and said he'd heard about their labor of love. They're, they're working to exhaustion and love. In your relationships to one another, we're, in our relationships to one another, we're to labor to exhaustion. To love one another. In love toward one another. Because of love to Christ. So the prayer because of dependence, but then the call to obey because he's provided. The idea is expressed later in chapter 2 in verses 12 and 13 where he calls the Philippians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I prayed for you that God would make your love to abound. Now you maintain that love This love is 
the love of loving others as Christ did when he took the form of a bondservant. That's what he moves to next in verses 5 and following. And how can they possibly experience real unity? Well, only by loving as Christ loves. Agreement upon doctrine, again, is not enough. Uh, we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says there are these guys who are preaching from envy and strife. Selfish ambition. They mean to do me harm. Verse 17. They want to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But he does not rebuke them for their doctrine. He does not say they're preaching a false Jesus or a false gospel. So let them be anathema. Rather, he says they're preaching Christ. Even if what they mean is to cause me harm. And so I rejoice because Christ is being preached. Not a doctrinal problem, but there was a problem about maintaining the same love. Paul says, think the same way, but also have the same love. Maintain the same love. This love that covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. In his greeting to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians, he writes and says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Is that true of you? Some days I feel like I have a diminishing love. Not when I'm walking in dependence upon the Lord, but there are days when I'm not doing that as well and I feel like I have a diminishing love. But Paul says of the Thessalonians, they have a faith that's greatly enlarged and a love that's greatly increasing. May God be able to say that of us. That those things keep pace with one another. We hear truth, our faith is enlarged, but... Our love also increases towards one another. The second term that he uses here is united in spirit. This is actually one word. And it's the only place that it occurs in the New Testament, though it was, I guess, common in the culture around them. Um, in the culture, it expressed a deep and strong friendship. Another way to translate it would be harmonious. Dennis Johnson says that the term soulmates captures the idea. They're soulmates. And usually we think of that in you know, more like husband and wife, romantic kind of situation. But I mean, if you can remove the romance from it, you know, man and man can be soulmates toward the purposes of the gospel. Or, or woman and woman, we're walking together, brothers and sisters and you're all together as soulmates because we've been united in soul towards this great purpose. He goes on and says, Paul seems to be saying, quote, it's not enough to agree with each other theologically. God actually calls you to care for each other deeply in a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspective Cannot pull you apart. 
we're only united around a thought, you know, we might have a disagreement of thought at some point. The, the disagreements of opinion, of differences, could eventually perhaps divide us. But here he says it's a love that's so strong and so deep that it can't divide over differences of opinion. And so this kind of mutual affection brings a stability to relationships that will not split over differences of, of opinion. But the differences can be addressed with patience and love and humility because neither side will let go. The third expression in verse 2 is intent on one purpose. I'll mention one more time that the word intent is the same word that he says at the beginning of the verse when he talks about being of the same mind. Intent on one purpose. Having a, a mindset bent on one purpose. As he repeats it in a slightly modified way, he also intensifies the whole idea. Is this, if he's getting excited about this concept, he wants to make sure they get it. And so in eagerness, you know, he, he says the same thing in kind of three ways. I want you to be of one mind, and, you know, of one love, and, and you've got to be intent on one purpose. and You've got to get this. Here's a, a single-mindedness of purpose that's strong enough to call us all together around this purpose so that you know, other things that might divide us, other things that are real, just aren't as important because this thing is so important that it draws us and pulls us toward it. and We have to go toward that common goal. But that kind of unity of purpose is impossible if you are more intent on your own agenda or selfish ambition like the, the preachers in chapter 1 were, well, there's no unity of purpose there. But again, all these come together to express this great thought as Paul seeks to get his point across. So there's the description of verse 2, those, those three things. Same mind, same love united in spirit, deep affection, and intent on one purpose. But now, second, what's the purpose? I mean, think this same kind of thought. What thought, Paul? You know, same love. What's this love united around? Intent on one purpose. What's the purpose? Well, he doesn't say it explicitly right here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But you look at the book, and I don't think it's that hard to figure out. Um, in chapter 1 and verse 21, as he's rejoicing, he says, to, for me, to live is Christ. That's it. And even as these other preachers are preaching and trying to get him in trouble and cause him distress in his imprisonment, he says, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. And even though he may possibly face death, he goes on and says, I rejoice in knowing that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Either way, Christ will be exalted. In chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, another one of those familiar passages, he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Chapter 1, I rejoice he's being exalted. Chapter 3, this is the thing. I want to know him. I'm forgetting everything else to know him. In chapter 2, after calling them to this unity, he says to us in verse 5, have this attitude, this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and describes that in terms of his incarnation and humiliation and exaltation. Culminating in verse 11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Clearly, Paul's concern is with the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom, following the Lord Jesus, exalting Jesus, whether by life or by death. So when believers declare that to live is Christ and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, desire to know him above all else, then they will all be of the same mind with the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, because they'll all be living together and worshiping and serving together the one whom God highly exalted. So obedience to Philippians 2, 2 means more than just being agreeable or going along to get along. It means agreeing together that Jesus Christ is Lord and then submitting to his lordship. We'll get a clearer picture of that when we get to verse 5 and following. But there's the purpose, the uniting purpose of thought and heart and intentionality. And that kind of brings us back to verse 1. I want to talk about that again for just a moment. And this is the third thing in the last. We have there, again, those motives but also perhaps a, um, a hint at the source. You remember in verse 1, as he lists those motives, he lists them with the, the words, if, if this is true of you, if there's any comfort in Christ, etc. And, and we talked about how the ifs, there's no doubt about it. He's not saying if, like, you know, I don't really think it's probably true. But if it's true, that's not what he means at all. He's so certain that it's true that you could say because. Because there's so much comfort in Christ. Because you have um, the, the consolation of love. Because you have enjoyed fellowship of the Spirit. And because so much affection and compassion has come your way. Make my joy complete in this way. Being of the same mind, same love, etc. It's true. There's no doubt it's true. He, he listed in the if kind of way to evoke a response from you. If it's true and your heart is supposed to say, it is true, Paul. I have received that much comfort from Christ. I have received consolation of love. I have enjoyed the fellowship of the Spirit. I have known affection and compassion from God. These things are true. And if they're true, then... He wants you to come along and say, yes, I will labor toward this end. So he brings these along as motives 
Again, not to drive you to obedience, but to, to draw you to obedience, to make you want to get up and say, I want to obey in this. But in doing this, I think he also reminds us of the source that makes this unity possible. It has to be something that's strong enough and enduring enough to make this command possible, not only for the Philippians back then, but for us today and for as long as we live and for whoever comes next if Christ doesn't come. We've seen the world around us at various times, our world around us at various times, unite around purposes that are momentary, fleeting unity. Uh, one example of that would be you know, September 11. September 11, never forget. And there's people who weren't born then, here now, you know. Um, so they, they don't really remember in the same way that anyone who sat there on that day and watched it happen remembers. But even beyond that, you know, for a few days after that, I mean, churches across the land were having prayer meetings, right? And the politicians, all the politicians were kind of on the same page for a few days. There was a unity. We're not going to, you know, be um, political about this. We're, we're going to be united about this. But it only lasted for a little while. And then there was the same bickering that there's always, that's always occurring between the different sides. And the unity disappeared. It was a momentary fleeting unity. I'm glad it was there while it lasted. But reminding Congress of September 11 now doesn't do anything to unite them. So we need something stronger than the kind of momentary fleeting expressions of unity that the world can conjure up or that happen in a moment of crisis. How can people who at their basis level are selfish, sinful, prideful, I'm, I'm talking about us, how can people like that ever unite around anything real and enduring, especially when everything about this thing, this point of common interest, tends to humble rather than exalt? How can that happen? Well, there can be no other answer except that God does a work in you and in me and in every part, every person who's a part of it. The Spirit comes and regenerates and something changes. And there's a new principle at work and you know, all those different scriptural metaphors that, that happen when a person comes to life in Christ. What else can do that? If Jesus has not saved you and put a new spirit in you, a new life in you, then how can you possibly... Consider other people to be more important than yourself. How can you possibly humble yourself and, and regard others and, and do nothing from selfish ambition? We don't operate like that. We don't think like that naturally. Lloyd-Jones says, There is nothing that is so utterly idiotic as to ask men and women who are spiritually dead because of sin to be humble and to think of others before themselves. It's idiotic because it's impossible. They don't have what it takes to do that. It's not according to their nature. You're asking, you know, you're, you're asking them to act completely contrary to nature. But then God comes. 
And he takes what is dead and brings life. And he supplies everything that you need to obey him. Even in this matter of not acting from selfish ambition. Of regarding others as more important than yourselves. Not just looking out for your own interests, but the interest of others. And some of the evidences of his work are what Paul expresses in verse 1. Haven't you experienced any encouragement of Christ? What Christian would say, no, none? Haven't you, Christian, experienced the consolation of Christ's love? Yes. And again, not just past experience, but present spiritual experience. Maybe to greater or lesser degrees that you feel at any given moment, but it is your present reality if you're in Christ Jesus. There is the fellowship of the Spirit. There is affection and compassion being poured out upon you. And so it's not only motivation, but it's evidence of the work of God that he's done to make it possible for you to answer Paul and say, yes, yes, I, I want to do that. I should do that. I must do that. And so if this is your experience, that God has done this in you, here is how you are to live within a body of believers in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a way that reflects well Upon the gospel. You live thinking of others. For the sake of Christ. Regarding others as more important than yourself. Humbling yourself. Looking after others interests not only your own. You live in unity. Again not easy. In fact it's impossible. Apart from Christ. As we'll see next week. Paul goes on to describe. This in. The shocking terms, again, of, of regarding others as more important than yourself. How do you do that? <laughs> it has to be the work of God in us. And Paul then goes on to point us to Christ and his work. And also to give us the example of Christ as he himself does the very thing that Paul's calling us to do. He regards others as more important than himself. So believer, I ask you, how can you look there at the cross of Christ? How can you look there at His coming, His humbling Himself, and think highly of yourself? How can you look there and not bow before Him? I look at myself, and I have no desire to think of someone else as more important. I look at those around me and I, I don't feel a great desire to think of them before myself. But I look at Christ. And then how can you think highly of yourself? How can you not think that anybody must be better than you? We look at Christ and His cross and in the words of Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, 
My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When we look there, the call to be of the same mind and to maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, which will mean that we will, with humility of mind, regard others as more important than ourselves, does not seem odious. Seems like love. Love to Jesus and the love of Jesus to me.